This episode of The Swell Pod is brought to you in partnership with Kiln. Kiln provides flex office space for teams and individuals. Their all-inclusive set of amenities helps startups, creatives, and entrepreneurs alike get work done. Learn more about Kiln at kiln.co. What does it take to create something that never existed before? What does it take to challenge the status quo? What does it take to change the world? This is The Swell Podcast. We're passionate about the seed of an idea and how it swells into a movement. So take a journey with us as we seek the answers to those three questions through the stories of thought leaders, world builders, game changers, disruptors, and other pleasantly rebellious humans who ventured out into the unknown on a personal journey to do something novel, innovative, creative, or disruptive. Spencer, who do we have? So in today's episode, we chat with Dr. Sonny, our good friend that we've worked with for quite a few years. He's an innovation evangelist. He is the founder of Inflection Point and offers programs on design thinking, strategy, and consulting skills. He is the author of the book, Design Your Thinking, a great book we recommend. And Pavan is the columnist at Mint, Your Story, Inc. 42, and Entrepreneur and People Matters. Pavan was the only Indian to be shortlisted in the prestigious FT and McKinsey Bracken Bauer Award for Best Business Books of the Year. And he has been invited five times to speak at the te- at TEDx and is featured as one of the 100 digital influencers of 2020 by your story. So after that impressive intro, uh, we in this session, I, I, I guess they're going to love this, Josh, aren't they? Um, specifically because he dives into his very rich thoughts and insights around innovation. Uh, and I, what I remember from this session is that he just... He has a very um, practical way of explaining how this applies to everyone, right? Innovation, not just in the business, but it could be at home, home workers, spouses, like it, it can be really children, school children. So, and he talks really around it with a lot of like, he believes that common sense is one of the main ingredients of innovation and then lots of rich insights. Um, I think what I mostly remember is that he, has always engaged the audiences, um, sometimes up to a thousand people where we've attended in a really, really in kind of compelling way. Great storyteller. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Th- yeah. If you're interested in innovation, which obviously this podcast, what better topic than than innovation uh, and Dr. Pavansani. So uh, if you're interested in it at all, you're going to enjoy this one. So thank you. I'm going to ask you, mm-hmm. Josh, if you do you want to kick it off with a a, a, a great question for Dr. Sonny, because we we've worked with you, in fact, uh, before in other settings where you've come and spoken uh, in in India and uh, in 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 the US, and so we uh, we just it's just great to get together with you again on the Swell Podcast. Yeah, likewise. Welcome. Thank you so much. I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah, we're excited to have you, and I think maybe if we were to just kick it off. Mm-hmm. With the first question, like, you know, I, I'm interested to know how you get into a title, innovation evangelist. Like, how did, mm-hmm. how, how, how do you get into that spot, and 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 how mm-hmm. do you see that? Like, what does that title mean to you? And yeah, just help us understand yeah. that. Sure, sure. That's a good question to begin with. So I was always fascinated by this person by the name Guy Kawasaki. So Guy Kawasaki used to be the innovation and the product evangelist for Apple during those days. And when I used to work in Wipro, I always had this uh, 
believe that there is a huge misconception around innovation. And I thought that if I have to burst the myth about innovation, then I need to really don the hat of an innovation evangelist. So evangelism means three things to me. The first is the belief that anybody can innovate. Okay. It's just like how evangelists make people believe in religion. So I need to believe in innovation. So the first belief is anybody can innovate. The second thing is innovation is not about technology. It's not about product. You can innovate in any space. You can be a homemaker and innovate. You can be a school going child and you can innovate. You can be a medical professional and innovate. So innovation is for anybody and everybody. And third thing is innovation is very systematic. It's not ad hoc. It's not commonsensical. It's not rocket science either. It's somewhere between common sense and rocket science. And I was lucky enough that my organization previously gave me the title of innovation evangelist, which I could have on my card. And then I went about across the country from length and breadth of country. I went to schools, colleges, organizations, hundreds and thousands of people I got to meet outside of my organization with a single agenda of influencing them and teaching them that innovation is as common as intelligence. Creativity is as common as intelligence or knowledge except that most people do not see it that way. And that's what motivated me to do my PhD eventually, uh, which was again, focused in innovation culture. And eventually I went on to start my own consulting. That's called inflection point. So for a very, very long time now, I have been in the mode of evangelism, primarily around making people believe that innovation is something which is commonplace and not uh, exotic. That's been a belief for me. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And, and so Guy Kawasaki, um, you know, kind of, I think sparked that. Was there anything even earlier for you that said, you know, that kind of got you really passionate about innovation specifically? Um, and it was like, this is kind of what I want to pursue in, 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 in my life is, was there, was there anything that stands out as that moment or a series of moments that kind of got you to that point? Yeah. So from a very early childhood days, some of the people whom I admired include Edison. So Edison was a person whom I've always looked forward to, not because of uh, his ability to think differently, but his ability to influence the entire ecosystem around him. And that's very, very critical. So he was a great experimenter. He was a great thinker. He was uh, homeschooled by his mother. And uh, he had a very troubled personal life. But then what he wanted to do with the society at large is, I think, enormous and amazing. And then, of course, a few of the people back in India who did enormous amount of contribution to science and technology. Very early childhood days, I was influenced by scientists, uh, mathematicians, engineers, and that's what motivated me to actually do engineering. I wanted to be a nuclear physicist to begin with, but I somehow could not get into that. So I settled with engineering, then did my industrial engineering post that, and then did my PhD in the space of innovation management. And I continued to read and write. So I think some of these people really shaped up my love towards technology and innovation. Yeah, that's great. And and uh, you mentioned reading and writing, and it might be a good time, like now that we've kind of set some context about innovation evangelist and and breaking down some of the myths around innovation. So you've also you've you've also written a book, Design Your Thinking. Um, right. I'm imagining it explore. I haven't had a chance to read it yet. I want to. It's on my list. Um, but I'm imagining a lot of what you just kind of broke down is is within is within those pages. Do you want to just kind of give everybody listening a, some insights into what they might find uh, in your book? Yeah. So this design your thing, as the title suggests, the whole thrust is on how do you become a better thinker. 
how do you become a better problem solver and there are three key reasons why i wrote this book the first is whenever we talk about you know innovation creativity or even design thinking the discourse is heavily dominated by the western hemisphere we still talk about same old examples of apple amazon ikea ido southwest airlines walmart but we do not have a lot of good examples from india and some of people believe that design thinking cannot happen in india and that's a myth which i really really wanted to burst that design thinking or thinking per se systematically should and can happen anywhere in the world and why not in india so that was the first sort of motivation second motivation was that many people think design thinking and even innovation is about startup it's about high tech it's about products whereas a lot of innovation actually happens in customer engagement employee motivation process improvement experience management uh, and things of that sorts and i think if you can bring that perspective that you can be creative in any space that was my second core intent and the third intent was i have been for the last 16 years now and close to 450 workshops i have done in the space of problem solving and design thinking and every single workshop which i did including the one with uh, you know american express for example every single workshop which i did the sinking feeling which i had at the end of the workshop is what happens next It's amazing ideas which are on the table what do people do with these ideas i'm out of the scene and i have no idea about this black box the organization so i thought that how do we scale these ideas forward so taking these ideas after the workshop in my absence so that people have something to fall back on number 2 bursting the myth that innovation is about what the western hemisphere thinks about and number 3 that innovation is beyond products beyond startup and beyond technology there was a motivation of writing this book and uh, pandemic really gave me the chance to write it because uh, it gave me solid you know 8 9 months to sit down concentrate no travels involved and i could pen the book down it was a blessing in disguise if you will and finally the book is come out in the market and the book talks about a very systematic human centric model of problem solving though i anchor it on design thinking but this is not limited to design thinking and especially two chapters might be useful to my audience the first is how to be a design thinker so i'm trying to inculcate some good practices on anybody and everybody who wants to be more systematic about problem solving so that's first thing and second thing is how do you perform a workshop in the absence of an expert i think a lot of dependence unfortunately is on experts you have to call somebody to conduct a design thinking workshop which i think is a bottleneck that somebody should not be called why can't we do it on our own so i think if people read the book they will be able to pretty much run their programs on their own and perhaps be better problem solvers so that's what is the motivation for the book both to write and for others to yeah and i'll just say this because so what i've experienced of you has been has been um like keynote speeches um on online zoom uh you know kind of workshop sessions things like that and and what strikes me always with you is is you are an incredible storyteller like you just have that gift and and you there's a lot of stories that are are contained within a lot of a lot of your a lot of your a lot of your talks and a lot of your messages and and so I have a lot of questions I guess as it relates to the way you look at innovation and also the way that you look at even even just story in general because there's a lot of parallels especially how you talk about problems and and I would just love to know you know or at least I mentioned that I guess for anybody that's thinking about you know reading that book design your thinking 
I'm sure that there's a lot of really great stories in it and it's probably a super easy read because of those stories an engaging read. Um, but where does that come from for you? You know, the, the story component is, have you always been a good storyteller? Has that always been in your nature and your bones or? Yeah. Yeah. I always believe that uh, whenever we teach people forget concepts, concepts are not easy to read, but stories are easy to remember stories stick. And what I've always tried to do is that if you remember the story, by the power of association, you might end up remembering the concept as well. So the whole premise is stories are sticky, concepts are slightly more dense. And I really picked up storytelling through my evangelism days. Imagine I have to talk to somebody who is an eight-year-old child and somebody who is six-year-old adult. And to both of these people, I have to convince that, yes, you can innovate. Even if you are in school doing your homework, you can innovate. Even if you are retired, manage household, you can innovate. Now, what is that way in which I can connect to both of these extreme audience? And that's where the stories are very important. And though I, I never thought that what I'm doing is telling, but the whole idea was that what is the simplest way in which I can connect to my audience without bringing a lot of jargons into my conversations and trying to simplify that. And I guess that comes from my dad. My dad has been a good teacher. He taught me. Uh, all through my schooling, he taught me. Not that I was homeschooled, but I never went outside of school to learn anything. So between school and my dad, the world. And he is an amazing storyteller himself. So I think that is where I picked up some of these skills. And the more feedback I get from people that, yes, they're able to make sense of what I'm trying to talk to, uh, the more becomes. The... But to your question, is it cultivated? Absolutely, it is cultivated. Like any skill in life, it is also cultivated. And the fundamental skill of storytelling, in my case, is associative thinking. I think I'm gifted. Plus, I also acknowledge that this is as something which I need to develop. I'm pretty good at associative thinking. I can associate concepts quite seamlessly, like something which I'm learning from both of you right now. I just uh, finished watching a movie with my daughter. I would be reading tonight before going to bed. And tomorrow morning, I might very intuitively be able to connect these three disparate ideas and maybe write a small blog about it. Mm. But that associative ability comes quite naturally to me. And that's why bringing stories is quite effortless. So that's been uh, the secret, if you will. Yeah. I want to just ask one more one more question about stories and, and how you look at innovation. And then, um, Spencer, if you have any questions. But also, I think maybe we can get into more of the innovation side of things. But, you know, there's, I think, where I find such a strong connection to, I think, a lot of your messages is, I, you know, especially when you start to talk about the problem and you talk about empathy and, and you know, thinking about your audience, you know, there's strong correlations between, the, you know, the way that, you know, the way that you write a story or the way that you create a story, you know, oftentimes you're, you're in the shoes of a character or you're in the shoes of your audience, you know, as you're, as you're cultivating and creating a story. And, and it's effectively the same thing, you know, with innovation. And I, 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 there's so many interesting parallels there. And I'm wondering if either of those have fed into your, 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 the way you look at, like, has, has your storytelling ability fed into the way you look at innovation or vice versa? Absolutely. Empathy is the key. And I'll give you a live example of that. Uh, two, when I was doing my keynote at India, and that's where my first engagement with Spencer happened, my keynote was scheduled for about 3 p.m. India time. And I was in the uh, I was at the workshop venue by 11 a.m. 
and that was the schedule now from 11 a.m to 3 o'clock is when i actually made my entire presentation the presentation which i i completely abandoned that presentation i sat in the audience i understood the mood of the audience i heard one of the speakers who spoke before me spoke to a couple of people and redid my entire presentation including the background which i chose to be black the videos which i popped in the theme which i have chosen and luckily it went pretty well and i realized that if i have to engage 800 people in the audience i can't do without humor now i might not come across as a very human so far in the video but then to kind of engage with that audience i need to bring in the element of humor and to bring in elements of examples that people can understand some local examples from india from gurgaon where the workshop was happening those three hours which i was there i could completely abandon my previous thought relook at the audience absorb their energy level and customize my presentation completely while i was sitting at the reception all this while and i think that could happen because i was very comfortable to not only go out of my comfort zone but also i was perceptive about people's emotional content because if i don't have humor i can't engage people in a post lunch session it's very difficult that to 800 people that's absolutely difficult because they didn't come there to listen they came there to enjoy that was a dominant feeling they came there to unwind themselves if you again do it next year the dominant theme will be unwinding connecting socializing there i can't put a heavily so if i have if i can convey my message on top of humor on top of anecdotal advances or anecdotal examples the reception will be far better and that happened because of cognitive flexibility so i guess if i have to really kind of leave my audience with this one message core message is that the importance of cognitive flexibility even if you are fully prepared that should not uh, eliminate the possibility of completely kind of submitting to the situation and redoing yourself so the flexibility is is very critical and that's how jeff bezos interestingly defines intelligence what jeff bezos says is the highest form of intelligence is when you are able to relook at your own assumptions because you have a very strong assumption basis some proof some reality but then unless and until you are able to relook it question it you are not as intelligent as you would like to be so i think that's what helped me at all times yeah it's a lot about um you know i guess if we were to dive back into the innovation side of it too it's you know really, I think when you think about a problem, right, and you're thinking about the way a customer or that that problem affects a customer, right, and and removing any biases and, and having, as you mentioned, that cognitive flexibility to get rid of, you know, kind of to simply put yourself in and all everything that you're all of your assumptions aside to potentially look at the world in a completely different way is is, is really interesting. And I, I love that. Spencer, did you have, do you, you, you want to jump in with a with a question? Oh no, I'm, I'm, I'm just enjoying it. Um, <laughs> let me just think, uh, we can go a couple of different routes here, but yeah. I, I, I definitely think diving into the, you know, the problem, um, discovery, I think would be super interesting. Um, I'm kind of curious to know, you know, as you work with your own, th those local schools or in the past, and maybe even with your own family, you know, there are obviously methods and processes to innovation, designing your own thinking, designing your own innovation. Now you talk previously about the importance of insights, ideas and, uh, and impact, right? How do you, what type of stories do 
you share with uh with 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 the young children you know about the process of innovation like what what are you trying to get across to them and what type of stories do you share with with them it's a good question so if i have to engage with the child there are just about two key messages which i offer to the child the first message is the importance of taking risk or a chance it's very critical because in india what happens is the social conditioning that we have in this country does not necessarily allow us to take a lot of risk unlike the us or even the where individualism is very high and it is also celebrated indians are very collectivist thinkers we do not celebrate individualistic attitude so and innovation requires a bit of individualism because if the idea is so novel obviously you can't have lot of people supporting it because it would change the status quo so if i can teach my children where i engage with them that even if you are the only one who believe in that idea you can be right and if lot of people do not believe in an idea they can be wrong so the first thing is always that you need to develop a risk taking attitude and it's absolutely okay if people don't agree with you that's where any people including your parents by the way it's absolutely okay if they don't agree with you it's fine and i give them lots of examples from india from everywhere else on how an idea which was dismissed by the society by the parents by friends and even you start self doubt get turn out to be phenomenal in nature that's the first thing the second thing which i teach my children my students is the fact that why it is important to stay with the problem it's very critical to stay with the problem what often happens and that's something which i have learned from the germans and japanese when we work with germans and japanese companies and i have had the fortune of working with a lot of germans and japanese something very particular about germans and japanese is that given the time they would be very very comfortable with the problem so if there is a choice between staying with the problem or jumping to the solution the germans and japanese are very good in staying with the problem so much so that if you work with some of the german counterparts or japanese counterparts you might get frustrated that hey guys let's move on to solve it but they will still stay with the problem so staying with the problem is another very critical skill which i teach to my students that it's 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 okay if you do not know the answer but it is not okay if you do not understand the problem so if i have to reduce my discussion to two points the first is being individualistic taking risk about an idea even if you don't have people supporting you and the second thing is being comfortable with the problem space instead of abandoning the problem and jumping to the solution part staying with the problem because i strongly believe spencer and josh that excellence comes in doing the boring stuff well anybody can do exciting stuff there's no big deal in doing exciting stuff but not everybody can do the boring stuff and the boring stuff is to cross the t's and dot the i's and that's if children can learn that from an early age that they need to learn to enjoy the boring stuff they can possibly do wonders and i think universally children need to be taught that it's absolutely fine if things are not exciting if people are not appreciating if the gratification is not instant it's absolutely okay to stay in the problem zone because solve a problem permanently and then i kind of yeah. knit it with a lot of stories around it that's how it looks. yeah no i love it um i think it's uh, of course not just for children that message uh it's for the ceo uh, it's for the, the you know right down to 
um, the, the workers and, 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 and of course, mums and dads, because the, the, you know, trying to really understand the problem, um, you know, what seems and is perceived as maybe boring, um, ends up being the kind of engine fuel for, for, for great ideas, for lots of ideas and trying to find the right solution or idea for that problem you now understand. And I, can you tell us one of those stories though? Like I, I now feel like, you know, a child at the school or it, it, one of the stories you might share with them, a, a local example maybe? Absolutely. So this is a story which I shared today in one of the sessions. So imagining you are going on a trek and uh, you have been going on trekking for a very long time and you are trying to climb a steep slope and you fall down. Okay, you fall down and you get really hurt. You soil your clothes and you get hurt. Now, would you feel embarrassed? Would you feel that you have failed? Possibly not, because there's nobody watching you. So we'll just get up, dust yourself and start climbing again. But imagining a second situation where you are walking on a ramp in a fashion show and you slip and you fall down. There are people staring you and you will feel very, very embarrassed. Even if you didn't take any risk and you still fell down, you'll feel very embarrassed. Now, the difference between the first situation and the second situation is nothing except people. In the first situation, nobody's watching you. In second situation, people, that's where you felt you failed. That's where you felt embarrassed. But if cognitively you can remove people from your mind, both in the second situation and the first situation, there is absolutely. Because in the second situation, you didn't get even hurt. So I think if we can teach our children these very simple tips on understanding that comfortable not to please anybody else, but to do what you are good at doing. With these simple examples, a lot of their misconceptions would get cleared. So I just try to take a very simple, simple example from day-to-day -day affair to communicate with my audience and many times I, I can improvise and bring an example right there from the session to sort of communicate with my audience. And that's what helps tremendously. No, I love that. And um, I think Josh, maybe maybe we, we want to go toward kind of the problem solving. And maybe later on in the conversation, I'd love to kind of, you know, look, look at some of the th your thoughts around design your thinking sounds very similar to something we've been talking about is how you design a culture. Um, and can you do that? And what's your views on that? But maybe we don't go into that now, Josh, do you want to choose where we go next? <laughs> yeah, well, let's, let's stick with the problem for just a little bit longer yeah. because I, yeah. I, I, I think a lot of stuff that you said really resonated with me. I think the boring stuff probably hits really hard for me, you know, because I'm definitely a person who tries to avoid the, the boring stuff. I'm not very, like, I try, I try to be detail oriented as much as I can, but that, I don't know anyway. But I, I, I'm interested because you I've also heard you talk about really specifically it's it's it's, you know, so yes, staying with the problem until you really, truly understand it. And uh, and but it's also, you know, when you it's selecting the right problem as well, because I, I think I heard you say that there's there's more there's more ideas and there are problems and ultimately trying to, find, you, you know, you have to find the right problem that even going back to what you just said, right, to do the things that you are uniquely suited to do or that, that, that you must do even, you know, as opposed to what other people might expect of you or or what, you know. Um, so I'm wondering how, how you look at, you know, choosing the right problem as it as it relates to, to innovation or new ideas. And yeah. 
I strongly believe that once you cross 30 years of age, you need to be very clear about what is that something which you can do unique to people in the world. I believe that till 30 years of age, you should experiment. Experiment voraciously, experiment a lot. But once you cross 30, in certain cases, say 35, you need to be very clear about what is that something which nobody else can do perhaps as well as I can and keep investing into that. That's very, very critical. Even if it doesn't sound very attractive to begin with, that's very important. For example, I from a very early age knew that I can be a good teacher. That's all I knew because I love teaching. I started teaching at the age of 12. The first classes I used to take when I was 12 years of age. And when I was 12, I used to teach children who were 10 years, 12 years, 13 years. Okay, so that was how I used to teach. And then when I went to teach my first MBA patches, I was uh, 21 and I used to take it about 40 year age, average age group. And that's where I got the confidence that yes, I can teach. And that's what motivated me to do my PhD and then to write and to start a consulting company, etc. So I think choosing what to focus on can be defined by two parameters. One is external, second is internal. External means what is timely, what is in the market, what is in demand. And second is intrinsic. What is something that I can do a lot of hardship on? What is something which I can really endure against the tide? And if the latter, which is something you can endure against the tide, if that is the calling in life, then focusing becomes pretty easy. Because let us do a thought experiment, both of you. If any one of us die, <clears throat> any one of three of us dies today, how many things will we be remembered for? one or maybe two, right? Perhaps on our obituary, we might have one or two things. That's about it. And I distinctly remember Mahatma Gandhi, father of the nation for India. Now, if, if somebody remembers Mahatma Gandhi in the US, you don't remember Mahatma Gandhi as a great father to his own children, as a great husband, as a writer, right? You just remember him for somebody who got India freedom. That's it. Now, if somebody like Mahatma Gandhi remembered for one thing, most of us would be remembered, if you are lucky, for one thing. If you are lucky, by the way, not for two or three things. Which means that it's worthwhile to really dedicate our full throttle onto that one thing which you would like to be remembered for. I'm not talking about I mean it. And then keep investing into it. If I look at the last two, three years, I don't remember how much money I made, how many workshops I did. But the one thing that really stands out is that, yes, I could get my book published. That's something which I'm very happy about. And that's something which took time and I can't keep repeating it over and over again. I can't keep writing a book every year. But I'm very happy that I could finish my PhD, defend my thesis, get a book published. These are two things which I'm very, very happy about. And they took a long time. PhD took me six years to finish. Book took me two years to finish. It was a long period of time and I could do that stuff well. So I think if you have to choose, choose not basis what is in vogue. Choose basis what can you really endure. And that's where the often abused term passion comes into picture. I have two very simple definitions of passion, uh, which are self-created definitions. The first is passion is something that you are completely intrinsically motivated about. Extrinsic motivation doesn't work at all in passion. The second definition of passion, according to me, 
is passion is something that you never get tired doing. You never get tired doing. That's passion for you. Even if people say that you should take a break now, you don't feel like taking a break, that's passion. So passion should be the driving force of your focus and not what people say or what is in the demand. So that's how if you can have a calling in life, focus should be quite easy. That's my view. Yeah, that's interesting. And it makes me think about, you know, so passion and purpose, I think is, is great. And, and, and when you're, when you're, you know, pursuing a calling, even if, as it relates to innovation, let's say you find yourself, you find yourself a, a problem that's so core to, to what maybe is your, your calling or your mission, you know, and, and, and your passion in life. But then on the other side of it, you also have, you know, very specific problems that relate to, let's say, people who work within a company and, and they're solving problems that maybe they don't, they don't find a lot of passion into. And I think that's where, you know, I, I'd love to know your thoughts on, on that, because I think that's where empathy, the empathy comes in and finding passion in the empathy for others, I guess, and, and, and their specific problems. And so it's kind of like you're in this yes. balancing mode, I guess, but I'd love to know your thoughts on on how that translates, I guess, to when you're maybe not passionate about the innovation or the problem or, or how you find that, I guess. Indeed, yeah. it's a very, a very apt question, I must say that. Many times in organizations, you have to make people work on problems which are not necessarily their passion space. And that's where the role of leadership is very, very critical. The leader has to show them a purpose of why they need to solve the problem. They can't take an approach that if you don't solve the problem, this is what is going to happen. Now, that's a negative approach. But tell them that if you solve the problem, this is what is going to happen. And let me give you a simple story to demonstrate this point. And this is something which I picked up from the book called Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink. In this book, he talks about a very interesting situation. And situation is that these guys are in Ramadi, Iraq, and they've got a very uh, tough situation to exist and survive there. An order comes from Pentagon, and the order says that you cannot carry out any mission in Ramadi unless you involve local Iraqi soldiers. Now, at first, people didn't understand the SEALs, didn't understand that what does it mean? How can we take Iraqi soldiers with us? Number one, we are some of the most elite units in the world, the Navy SEALs, whereas these guys are not trained, they're malnutrition, they don't have armored they carry AK-47, that's not even Russian AK-47, that's a Chinese AK-47. And we don't even know if their allegiance lies to Saddam Hussein or to America. We don't know. And they don't speak English. Now, how can we act as a team? It's suicidal. So they said that we are not going to you know, agree to this uh, sort of a order. But the order said that if you carry out any mission without involving local Iraqi soldiers. And if you end up killing somebody, you'll be charged with murder. Mm. And that's a classic cash 22 situation for them. They can't sit, remain put in the enemy territory without shooting somebody because they'll get shot. But if they take the local Iraqi soldiers, the risk is too huge for them. In comes the leader, Jocko Willink. And he asks a very simple question. The question is, why are you here? And everybody says that we are here to win the war. So he asked that, what is meant by winning the war? So they said that, uh, you know, we kill them. That's the meaning of winning the war. So is that they don't come back, sign a pact with you, sign on the dotted line saying that we'll stop killing you? Is that how it's going to happen, winning the war? No. The only way you win the war is that you reduce their intensity. 
and you go back to america and you go back to america and their intensity increases and they again attack america will you keep coming back to iraq will the next 100 years american soldiers will be on iraq and afghanistan is that the future or would you allow afghanistan and iraq to defend themselves the answer is they have to defend their own country why should america defend their country they should defend their how will you make their country defend themselves by training their soldiers how do you train their soldiers you train their soldiers when you take them with you so when you take the iraqi soldiers with you you are not doing a favor on them you are doing a favor on yourself and that's the purpose many times the problem that happens with leaders is that they themselves are not clear about the purpose beyond making more money beyond you know betting betting on competition or getting more customers they are not clear about the purpose so how do they give purpose to their next in line so if as a leader you know if you can over communicate the purpose in the form of stories in the form of narratives i think it can never be over communicated that way and i think if we can give them the purpose then the orientation of the organization is truly towards the true north and that's where the critical i always believe and i'm just kind of coming to spencer's question on the culture i always believe guys culture is not made by the leader culture is made by the middle layer it's not the leader who sets the culture it's the middle layer who sets the culture because leader can say anything and get away with it leader says to the external world but the middle layer through their daily act through their routines through their behaviors incentive mechanisms their language vocabulary is where you set the tone on a daily basis and that's what people believe people don't believe the ceo people believe your boss what is my boss behaving like and that's where the middle layer or the middle act which is not been discussed i don't see many books written on general managers a lot of books on leadership not many books on vice presidents general managers presidents so i think that is where mm. setting the purpose right can be the real real game changer and interesting Can I just then ask well a couple of things so um why is it do you think that leaders don't necessarily do what you just described uh around clear inspiring often repeating kind of the purpose and the vision why why is that what's the root of it um and there may be just a piece on on what you've just said and uh, just to kind of clarify so I think I believe that it's the middle managers it's it, it people on the ground as well that can actually influence culture but absolutely the leader as well are you just saying because of the because of the volume of middle managers and their teams below them that they can make the most impact or are you saying actually yeah leaders are just it's is really not they really can't influence strongly culture so what i believe is that leaders do not engage with the people on a day to day basis however great the leader is and there are a lot of good examples how leaders have transformed the culture one very live example we have is satya nadella at microsoft he transformed a relatively toxic culture into a very very uh, emotionally intelligent culture now he didn't do it single handedly if you read his book hit refresh in the very first month at the office he fired a lot of people and he got some very interesting people to report into him and he just goes with colin says 
get the right people on the bus and wrong people off the bus before you start the bus and i strongly believe in that leaders at a certain level the most important job that they do is to get the right people on the right jobs once i do that these people who are then reporting into me they are the ones who set the tone now why most leaders don't do that i believe the first there are three reasons why i believe most leaders don't do that the first is they do not think it is important they simply think that if i show people money and if i show people more money that should be sufficient if i somehow link doing something more with getting paid more that kind of a mindset should be very sufficient but i don't think so game changing innovations do not happen this way you would manage the show but you would not transform the proceedings with that kind of a equation that's the first major insight the second thing is that they do not use storytelling as a mechanism as effectively as they should they use powerpoint presentations as a mechanism they use hard cold data as a mechanism that okay we were x dollars last year let us do x plus delta x this year our attrition number was 10 per last year let us do 8% people say why when I mean, why should 10 be bad and 8 be okay why do we have to grow at this compounded growth rate every year unless and until leaders are able to translate these cold statistics into narratives it's going to be very difficult and the third thing is that they do not incentivize people to follow the new model and what i mean by incentivization is not only money i think a lot of different models of incentive and creative ways of incentivization are very required so i believe that it is important power of stories beyond data and beyond facts and how and the incentive mechanisms are the three means by which you can really transform people and we see it all the time in successful organizations yeah i like that josh i think we've had lots of conversations around kind of this area and i i liked particularly the piece around you know leaders i mean i think leaders have to be cult, like culturally aware really have um you know strong opinion on what culture they want to build um and if they do so they can actually then hire for the future culture you know hire those people that can actually help influence um uh, but but yeah i love i love the piece just around how leaders yeah they're very analytical often and and they they know the subject incredibly well and i think many people including leaders don't really like to repeat themselves over and over again if you understand it why would you need to explain it or if you think you understand it but i i think yeah maybe some fundamental storytelling compelling stories um would would be a great skill to to influence leaders um but yeah josh i, I what what do you what are your thoughts around this cuz where do you want to go next yeah well, i have so i have so many thoughts about <laughs> the, the topic yeah. of i mean so this specific topic like i was mm. you know i i think about i i don't even know where to jump in but i i will say there was it may so it makes me think of story in a, in a, in an like the way that for some reason my mind just kind of goes back to story but mm. it's you know you know there there's there's the saying of you know show don't tell and i think as it relates to culture and as it relates to leadership i i kind of look at it in the same way i think the way that you have to be specific about the way that you have to be specific about your vision you know you know what are you actually striving for your purpose and your mission for 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 the organization i think in in the same way i think you have to be be very specific and 
and clear about the the values and you know that 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 encourage the right behaviors that get you to that vision um but going back to the show and and you know versus tell it's kind of like yeah well as long you have to be as long as you're really specific and clear about it you know i think the responsibility then at that point is to just make sure that you're you're showing those behaviors through your through your actions and behaviors and um, but it was really interesting. I was listening to this other podcast, um, Design Better. I talked about this a little bit with you yesterday, Spencer, um, where they talked with Brian Chesky uh, from Airbnb. And they talked about, you know, he, the whole first half of that podcast was a lot about, a lot about um, you know, interestingly enough, I think culture and vision and, and, and values. And they talked about the Super Bowl ad that they did. You know, basically, basically, it was like they, they drew a, li a line in the sand as far as where their company stood because uh, there was a political thing happening out in the world um, around the building of the wall in the United States. And, and, and Airbnb, you know, their values reflect back to the idea of belonging. You know, you can belong anywhere. And that, that statement of, of, of this wall was so against, I think, the, the values and the culture of what Airbnb stood for that it felt like it was the right time for them to stand up. And what that commercial to you know as i as i think about that commercial what it kind of represented was was this the vision and value but showing and, and not telling and and you know it was really interesting because he related what happened after that as something that was of, of course expected like some people were very happy about it and some people were on the opposite side of the spectrum and very angry about it and the way brian worded it is he was like well maybe those people you know aren't the right people for Airbnb, you know? And so immediately by setting that vision, setting the things that you stand for, the culture of your, both your organization and the culture of your brand, it's like all of a sudden you're, you're you know, the, the, the clearness, the clarity in that is, is all of a sudden you start to attract the people for your culture mm. as well, right? That are going to resonate with that culture. And then all of a sudden the people who might not fit that culture kind of get out. So it's, it's, there's, there's, a lot of value to advocating the, with very, very clearly and specifically your, your, your vision and, and your values. I don't know. That was, that was and, a little and living it and, li and living it, it. Yeah. And living it. Right. And, and I love, it kind of goes back to that passion thing as well, because you're, you're, you're basically, you're going to have customers that are more passionate about your brand right? Because you stand up and yes, you'll lose some, you'll gain some, but the ones that you gain and the ones that you, you know, maintain are going to be ones that, uh, yeah, but are more bought in to, to the values of that brand. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting. I think when we, when we talk about the problem, um, being really specific about the problem, I think is, is interesting. And, and I guess, you know, the, the other thing that I've heard you talk about that I would love to just get more, have, like have a conversation about is, you know, you talked about once um, design, designing what else versus designing what less, you know, and, and being really clear and, 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 and I guess even, you know, specific about what it is that you're that you're that you're that you're designing for and, and and solving for but yeah i don't know could you could you talk to that point a little bit would that be all right absolutely so for, for a very long time our understanding about better design has to be more and the model that comes to my mind is fab features advantages and benefits we somehow start to believe that more features means more advantages and hence more benefits to the customers. But if I look at the evolution of design over the last, 
two decades or so, it has been that interestingly less features might have more benefits. And a very simple example is the remote of uh, Fire TV Stick, Amazon Fire TV Stick. I was just having that remote in my hand right now. Compare Amazon Fire TV Stick remote control with your uh, TV remote. It's a huge difference because it has more features, but it has, you know, the, it has less features actually, the Amazon Fire TV Stick remote, but has more benefits. So I think this fundamental shift Instead of adding layer by layer, if you can start to remove things layer by layer, that is going to be significantly different. You have to reduce your understanding to the most important thing that the product or the solution is supposed to do. Going back to a very famous example of Soviets using the, using the pencil, instead of Americans trying to invent a pen that can work without gravity. Now, while a pen that can work without gravity, definitely no doubt about that. And that has a lot of advantages even in gravity. Suppose you to write on the ceiling with against gravity, it has a lot of benefits. But to solve the problem elegantly, Soviets used a very, very simple solution, which is a pencil. Now, the key for all of us is to understand if you can reduce the discussion to what is that most fundamental benefit that the customer is wanting. And to your point, Josh, we need to understand who is that customer as I believe that great leaders polarize audience. Don't fear polarizing audience. Absolutely okay to polarize your audience. Uh, it will be very naive for one to believe that the world has to be an audience. By polarizing your audience, you're very clear whom you want to target, whom you're okay to let go. And for that particular segment whom you're trying to target, which can be as good as a niche, small niche that you have in mind, you need to understand the benefits then the advantages, then the features. So add, if needed, delete everywhere else. So that's been the philosophy, including when you make presentations. Mm. Yeah, I love that. I love uh, that. That kind, of, that kind of makes me wonder, Josh, around uh, and Dr. Sonny, you know, what type of cultural strategies or features or things within a culture you might remove, right, to to hone in on a, a particular problem um, to, to, to really maximize kind of the benefit. I'm not sure you know, how that would work, but, but it's, I'm sure that principle is true everywhere um, as we target problems, even culturally, uh, if you're trying to build a, an innovative culture, you know, what needs to go, what needs to be taken away uh, to be, so that you can be not just streamlined, but focus more on the, the things that will generate the, the desires and the behaviors you, you need to see. Um. Absolutely. So let me give you an example uh, to demonstrate this particular cultural aspect. Imagine you're driving a car. Now there are two roads, okay? Both are huge roads, very well made. Road A and road B. Road A doesn't have any dividing line. There is no markers on the end of the road. There's no dividing line at the end of the, in the middle of the road. Road B has proper markers and proper dividing line. Which of the two roads would you be able to drive faster and with greater confidence, A or B? Go ahead, tell me. The one with lines? B, the one with lines? Yeah. Spencer, what do you say? Uh, yeah, I agree. Same thing, lines. And why? Why? Well, yeah. So I, my mind went to this example that I think your brother shared once about this idea of like, 
um, you know, children playing in a park, right? So children are playing in a park and, you know, there's no fence around the park. It's this experiment. How far away do the children get from the parents, right? In the example where there's no fence around the park, they're, they, let's say they, they, the, the children venture out 10 to 15 feet away from their parents. Now you put, them, you put a fence around that park and all of a sudden you say, okay, go wherever you want kids, you know? And all of a sudden the kids are venturing out further and further and further away from their parents because they know where their boundary is. They know where they can't go beyond. And I think that's kind of the same concept. Uh, the lines create the boundaries and, it's, and we're actually really more comfortable, I think, operating within, within certain boundaries. We feel safer. Uh, we feel like creativity even, you know, a lot of people believe that it works, that creativity is much more effective within constraint. And, and so, yeah, anyway, that's, a, that's a long Absolutely. response. Yeah. So B. Now let us add the road C. Road C is just like road B, dividing lines, markers, etc. But in road C, there is another dimension that every uh, few meters, right, uh, there is a placard. And the placard reads, now you should be uh, on gear number three, your speed should not be more than these many miles an hour. Watch out for the turn. There might be some animals crossing the road. There might be some cyclists that you might expect going forward. So this is useful information being put to you every few meters. Now, which of us would you be able to drive more confidently and with a greater speed? A, B, C. I haven't, <laughs> I have more thoughts, I guess, because I think it depends on, I, like, I would look at those signs as like, it depends on when they're occurring, I guess, like the way that I would think about it is it's like, as long as that information is happening along the journey at the right point in time, right, which usually tends to happen, you know, you see a deer crossing sign or something where there's probably been known to have deer crossing, but you're not receiving all that information at once. Um, which I believe is what you're talking about, right? Like, but yeah. Um, so again, I would, I would argue that again, just more information, more insight into the road that you're driving on is, is best as long as it's happening at the right time. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Now the whole intent of the information is to assist you. Many times what organizations end up doing is they give you so much of information so that you don't end up making a mistake. So much so that you don't even end up using your own intelligence or creativity. Mm. Most large organizations go from road to road B, which is an innovative company, to a road C, which is highly bureaucratic. It's not that they have a wrong intent. They want to help you, but they don't trust you. They don't trust your own judgment. They don't leave any room for adventure. What if there was no signage and you saw a beer crossing? What if there was no signage and you had a turn and you really enjoyed Versus you getting actually nervous about, did I miss a sign? So what, to Spencer's point, what organization need to eliminate is a feeling of distrust. Mm. Be told what needs to be done. That needs to go away. Because we have somehow taken a lot of legacy, a lot of vestiges from the industrial revolution. That a worker needs to be told that you have to just be told that this is how a software code has to be written and not something that the worker or the employee can pick up on her own. She may fail, but for all likelihood, she might create something so wonderful, which you never thought is possible. Mm. So the SOPs, which once were useful, but now they've outlived their utility needs to be cut down. What more liberty has to be given to people. I'm not saying don't have any rules and regulations. That's anarchy. Don't do that. 
but having too many of them is also not useful so what i always believe is this yin and yang innovation culture is a yin and yang of chaos and order because without chaos things don't evolve but without order there is no performance you can't perform without order it's all chaotic but without chaos things don't evolve it's static so that right balance has to be and most organizations are on the side of trying to discipline too much putting too many checks and balances in the name of regulations by the way sir they often think that because there are regulators because there is government because there are customers because of so many reasons which are often self imposed that they are not able to look at things differently and all it takes is a startup like airbnb to shake you up saying that hey maybe you are overdoing the whole thing because you are not being creative enough and why are you not being creative enough because you want to play very safe mm. your assumption of safety is outlived the utility so that is what needs to be deleted spencer strongly yeah. i believe uh, i'll yeah that that makes a lot of sense um you know what it, I, yeah, you know on. so you know what it made me think of though um, yeah. <laughs> i know this is wrong but it made me think of like what would the what would the order side look at look like like option c if it was just a more enjoyable type of order like you know watch out for this really awesome bridge that you're about to cross or like <laughs> there have been known to be bears over here so make sure that you're you have your eye out but try to pay attention to the road as well like i mean yeah you yeah you can't have a sign that says that but it made me think about a more enjoyable type of order um Well, I don't, Josh, we, we've had actually, and there has been quite a bit of that. If you just think about roads, uh, I think there has been efforts uh, in Utah, actually, oh, yeah. uh, where we live now, and you live, um, road signs that are more humorous, that, 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 that allow you to kind of be nudged in the right direction. Uh, but, you know, I, I love that example, <laughs> uh, especially the uh, the bears one and the bridges. I think there could be a lot more of that. But within a, within an organization, I like how you brought it back, Dr. Sonny, around the the emotional connection, right? The the, the feeling. Does this feel um, safe? Can we can we safely innovate? Can we safely take risks? Can we safely fail? Um, Because you know we 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 talked to uh, Daryl Rigby who wrote Doing Agile Right, and he makes this argument: you have to have a balance between um, you know culture and process, or culture and bureaucracy. You know, you you can't fight the system. You kind of you got to work together. Um, but yeah, it's same thing, right? Y y yin and yang. You've got to be able to find that right balance, but continually trying to ask the question: How does this make people feel? And how does this make people act? And and, and just right. make tweaks. Yeah. Mm. I like that. Yeah. So thinking about then, you know, from your experience, Dr. Sani, um, the trust factor, you know, and 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 what what you look at in terms of innovation, you know, what has what have you seen? Like I'm thinking about large large scale organizations, right? That are really heavily baked into in, into that order, right? And 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 you are looking at organizations that are coming up that are threatening, you know, threatening their space, right? That are coming up and 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 are operating in this really quick, you know, kind of dynamic relationship between probably more chaos than order, but they do find order at times. But they're innovating incredibly quickly and. And so looking at the idea of trust in terms of like larger organizations and, 
and, and breaking some of those habits down? What have you found to be some of the more successful ways? I mean, is, is it, is it like the principles of design thinking and just simply changing the way that you're thinking and trying to get more people to operate in that, in that method and, and that mode of thinking while also building the right, the right systems within your organization to enable that? Or yeah, I don't know. What have you, what have you seen? Yeah. So the first thing is that the culture overhauling cannot happen for the hundred percent employees. There is a tipping point and the tipping point happens at 30%. Now, if you make all the people in the company creative, I think it will quickly turn out to be very chaotic. Creativity for everybody means different. For a front employee, creativity is different than from an R&D professional, than from a service executive. I think the tipping point is 30%. Once you are able to convert 30% of your employees into the new way of thinking, the avalanche will start. That's a tipping point. That's the first thing that we need to realize that many times leaders make this classic mistake that I need to train everybody on design thinking in the company. That's not the right approach to do. Don't train everybody. Maximum train 30% of your workforce and let them train the remaining 70%. That's it. If you think the 30% is trained or educated or is using the new vocabulary, that's done. Let them start the ripple effect because I'm more likely to follow my peer than my leader if there is no external motivation because I would have this vicarious learning from my peer group than what my supervisor asks me to do. That's very important at a psychological level. The second thing is the size of a team. Uh, you know, Malcolm Gladwell writes in his book that why 150 is the right number. Any team which is bigger than 150 in size, any organization which is bigger than 150 in size starts to dysfunction and starts to break down. And whether it is about military organizations, both social, political, economic organizations, 150 seems to be the magical number. So if large organizations can start creating subgroups, no bigger than 150 in size, and provide autonomy as if this is behaving like a mini CEO, with this conduit, I think that might work remarkably well. And that's what Amazon did with Zappos. Now, Amazon acquired Zappos in 2009 or 10, I believe, but they allowed Tony to run the company for the next 10 years. And it's remarkable that the kind of autonomy that they allowed Tony to have for such a long period of time, it's unfortunate that Tony is no longer with us, uh, but it's a remarkable story on how this single idea of pursuit of happiness or delivering happiness as he used to call it, it was allowed by Jeff Bezos, who otherwise seems to be a person who is very productivity focused, right? So it's a credit that goes to that gentleman and to Tony as well, in terms of allowing that chaos to reign. So I think if I have to reduce the discussion to two key points, the first one would be the optimal team size and the second is the tipping point. Don't be in a rush to train everybody. Like many companies did that, isn't it? Six Sigma training, black belt, green belt, Six Sigma training. Now creativity is not like Six Sigma. And there's a very fascinating research available to us about that how 3M went about training its employees on Six Sigma and in the pursuit, it sapped creativity out of this legendary organization. And that's for everyone to see. So I think leaders can be cognizant about picking the right people, training the optimal number and breaking the organization into smaller pieces. I think culture can be transformed. Mm. Yeah, that's a great answer. 
I, I don't know. I, I, I was, it may, I was also thinking about then on the flip side, you know, from a, from like a startup standpoint, you know, where there might be the inverse side of that, right. You might see a much higher, a much higher preference for the, for the chaos of, of what, well, you know, because, because you're so aligned to, I think, ideally what this vision and, and, and the problem that you're trying to solve within a really tight group of people, you know, I guess I, I don't really know what a question is, but maybe we can just discuss like the idea of building, building order into that and, and kind of in the startup world, you know, uh, wh where do you see that kind of fall in? And, and yeah, what, what kind of thoughts do you have around, around that, I guess? And Josh, are you talking about kind of your under 150 people kind of startups? Yeah, uh, yeah. Because, you know, you get to, the un you know, when you start to, we've seen those organizations that go from kind of 150 right up to kind of the thousand mark, that exponential growth, which actually creates its all sorts of challenges that, but are you talking about the smaller? Yeah. And I think maybe that's, maybe, maybe that helps me figure out more of the question because, you know, you will see significant change and maybe that's where you start to be more proactive about how you're actually designing your culture for that trust, I guess. Right. Because, you know, as you start to grow in numbers, as you grow beyond, you know, whether you're five people or and you get up to 150 or, and then you're, and you're starting to grow into, into something much larger, much beyond, much beyond that control or, or, or that order that you, or that chaos, I guess, of the 150, that, that better dynamic balance. But, you know, it's, it's then, I guess, designing for the trust and designing for the culture and designing for the, the order that you're then kind of putting into that system, I guess. I don't know. So the insight comes from military. How do military organizations scale? The problem with chaos is chaos cannot be scaled. Mm -hmm. Chaos can only be contained. You can never have chaos at a very big scale. But how do military organizations scale? How do religious organizations scale? The way they scale is by replacing individuals with something which is bigger than the individual. And that is the purpose. Let me give you an example of a hospital down south in India called the Arvindai Hospital. Now, this hospital was started in late 1970 by a person by the name uh, Venkatappa Govindaswamy. And he started this hospital when he was 60 years of age. Now, imagine starting a company when you're 60 years of age. Most people retire at that age, but then he had the uh, vision of starting a hospital. A very simple vision statement. I love it for the simplicity of the vision statement. Three words. Eradicate needless blindness. That's it. Eradicate needless blindness. Now, I happened to visit this hospital a couple of years back. I was in Madurai doing a workshop with a company and I visited this hospital. So I took a tour of the hospital, went about talking to the nursing staff, doctors. I actually saw some of the operations being performed uh, in the operation theater and I came out. So I asked this gentleman that many doctors leave this hospital but nurses don't leave the hospital. So the employee turnover at the nursing staff is very small, but the employee turnover at the doctor's staff is very high. And I didn't understand that. Why so? It was a puzzle for me. Are you not paying them well? Because if salary is the problem, then both of them should either stay or leave. But why this dissonance? And he said that doctors leave because they have to you know, perform operations at other hospitals. So I thought that why not to put a bond? You should not allow them to leave because you invest much in them. And he very politely takes me to the vision statement. And he makes me read the vision statement. And the vision statement was eradicating needless blindness. And he asked me politely that when a doctor leaves our hospital, 
what do you think he is doing? He is eradicating needless blindness. Is he not supporting our vision? The answer is yes. Whether he is working in our hospital or not, he is supporting our vision or not. He is supporting the vision. So if you can replace individuals with visions or with calling in life, that is where you can scale. And many leaders don't do that. Mm. Their objective statement or their purpose is so diffused, so unbelievable at times that people just don't want to do it. And they have their own individual selfish purposes. And that's where things start to dismantle. So if you have to scale an organization, the clarity of purpose and the repetition of it on almost on a daily basis is important. And that's the reason why, always remember, why do militaries hoist the national flag on a daily basis? Why do they sing the national anthem? Daily they sing the national anthem. Daily they polish their boots and wear the uniform. Why do they do that? They need to be remembered and reminded on a daily basis that what are you fighting for? What are you ready to take the bullet for? If somebody shoots you, why should you take the bullet? You should take the bullet for your country, for this national flag, for your military. Why not we do that for our employees? Why not we hoist the flag for the employees, sing the national anthem, make them have a sense of pride in what they're trying to do. Mm. We just don't think it is important enough. We think getting a paycheck at the end of the month should solve everything. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen. So that's my view. Yeah, I love that. And it made me think about, well, first off, I was just sinking into my seat, I think, in that moment. It was <laughs> it was really good. But it made me think about um, your title, Innovation Evangelist, right? And the, 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 the calling and the purpose in that, right? And how powerful that is. And I, I think that that's really pretty cool. And it made me, I guess, want to ask, like, for the other people who are also innovation evangelists out there, but maybe haven't associated that necessarily, those two, those words to themselves yet, maybe that is their calling, maybe that's, that's their passion. What advice or, or feedback, you know, could you give to them? It's a good question. The first thing is invest in yourself. It's very, very important to invest in yourself. Many a times we forget the dual aspect of exploitation and exploration has to go hand in hand. You become so busy conducting workshops. You become so busy talking to people, giving seminars, giving lectures, that your content loses freshness. And that's the first nail in the coffin. The content should never lose freshness. It's very, very important that you need to have an engine where you're reading, you're listening, you're talking to people and you are keeping your content, your narratives very rich. It's very important. And that gives you authenticity. That gives you credibility. That's the first point. And investing in yourself is, has to be done deliberately. Very, very important. For example, when I was writing my book, I had to read 50 books at least to be able to write this one book. And I had to say no to a lot of speaking opportunities, uh, no to a lot of consulting. Don't regret all of that one bit because this thing was important. So exploration and exploitation has to happen simultaneously. And that's MBTX charity. That's point number one. Point number two, you should never ever think that this audience is below par. And I will only talk to this audience. The most difficult of the audience will actually teach you how to convince them, how to convert them. It's very important. So I'll be very comfortable talking to kindergarten kids and comfortable talking to CEO. I'll use different examples 
my body language will be different but i would never ever think that this is not my audience and only this is my audience i think that's very wrong for you to think because you are an evangelist after all an evangelist the only religion of an evangelist in my case is innovation that's it that's the only religion i need to have that's the second point so invest in yourself never dismiss an audience and third thing that you need to bear in mind is you need to develop a t-shirt personality but t-shirt personality is that you need to have a tremendous amount of depth the depth has to be non negotiable i'm not saying i need to be on the cutting but whatever i claim to know i need to know that thoroughly but at the same time i need to have empathy and what happens with expertise and you would agree that expertise often comes at the cost of empathy the more expert you become the less empathetic you end up becoming because you are always wanting to give the answer before the question is finished you want to think ahead of yourself ahead of your audience and that's where empathy takes a back seat so if you can cultivate a sense of empathy by being good listener by being good observer and by delaying your judgment i think you can really do well as an evangelist so that's my advice for the audience josh that is i think that's great right. like i i related to a couple moments in that and i think you know we're we're about hitting time and i just want to ask maybe one last question just about like you know i'm wondering if you before this podcast started like did you have anything that you were hoping to talk about right that maybe we didn't that we didn't get into because we we touched on a, on a couple different things that seemed very interesting to us and and we dove into into deeps in the, into the deep areas for certain things but yeah is there anything that we that you would that you would like to talk about that we never we didn't really have a chance to get into yeah so one thing which i wanted to speak about the purpose in life ask me what is my purpose in life i spoke about passion but passion is not same as purpose uh passion drives purpose and purpose drives passion so the the think of the purpose as the end result and the passion is a fuel in your bike so you need the fuel in the bike to reach to the end result but the fuel in the bike will never tell you what the end result is so what is my end result and that's a that has given me a tremendous amount of clarity tremendous amount of clarity whenever i i'm indecisive and the purpose in my life josh and spencer is to touch as many lives as possible meaningfully that's my purpose touch as many lives as possible meaningfully and how did it help me having a clarity of purpose when i was getting this book published i had this very interesting dilemma about royalty that am i writing a book to earn money or am i writing a book to reach to as many people as possible through my message now i whenever i do a workshop i give free copies of my book to my audience and that obviously comes at the cost of my royalty but then that clarity that my objective is to reach as many people as possible meaningfully that takes a complete dilemma out as i'm very clear about it the objective is to reach to as many people as possible that's it so at every juncture if the purpose is clear in you then i think things become pretty straightforward so that's my purpose and i i wanted to just narrate that out and any forward as well would be similarly driven by this purpose to touch as many lives as possible meaningfully so that's one thing which i thought might be of interest that's awesome well this was enjoyable spencer i'm sure you probably felt the same any last yeah. thoughts or do you want to wrap up 
No, this is this is so good. But yeah, we could absolutely carry on the conversation. Lots of made lots of notes of things we could have continued with. But this has been fantastic. I know our audience will love um, li have loved listening and just thinking uh, through, you know, how they they can really, you know, nice reminder I think around the purpose and and the vision and just being able to, you know, very carefully you know, think about how you can accomplish those things through even redesigning your thinking or, or redesigning your culture around innovation or, you know, all sorts of great things. So yeah, we appreciate it. I wonder if Dr. Sonny, you could let uh, our audience know uh, where they can contact you. Um, and uh, yeah. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't get the last part of the question. Oh, Spencer. just, just if I, if our listeners want to reach out to you or learn more about okay. Uh, the book, uh, how can they contact you? Where can they All learn right. more? Sure, sure. So the book is available on Amazon right now. I'm also in the, I'm, I'll be starting the audible version of the book. So I'll be recording it in a studio. So I think the audio version of the book is also available. So both Kindle and hardcover is available on Amazon as we're talking. Uh, reaching out to me, the best model is LinkedIn, because that's a more meaningful uh, platform where we can have communication. Um, and then, of course, uh, when this podcast goes live, that would be another model where you can possibly reach out. So LinkedIn would be a preferred model for reaching out to me. That's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was so enjoyable. I must say that, Josh and Spencer. Very yeah. sharp questions. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, it was, it, was, it was a good time. Best part of my morning so far. Um, but yeah, I think that's a wrap. And uh, we look forward to talking to you again. Thank you so much me. Take care. All right. Thanks for hanging out with us, everybody. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Swell Podcast. Be sure to like and subscribe. And if you did enjoy the podcast, please be sure to leave a review uh, and get involved in the conversation on all the major socials at the Swell Pod. We'll see you next time. Thank you.